Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merc and fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss um, I know, and after I was laughing too because after when your book, I've got eight pages of notes, and four is really the the fit for for this time frame. But you know, <laughs> getting a little bit of Okay. Wonderful. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about hate, what it means and where it comes from, when it's an appropriate fluid emotion, and when it's repugnant and harmful to oneself and the community. I've been thinking about meanness and the pressure to be nice. I've been thinking about bias and equality, about reframing, deflection, and taking stock of our thoughts and responsibility for our actions. My guest today is writer and political commentator Sally Cohn. She is the author of the new must read book, The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity. She advocates replacing political correctness with emotional correctness and has made a career of successfully communicating with people whose views she passionately disagrees with. She doesn't so much mind being called a moronic libtard, but is bothered by the idea that people have become so comfortable in doing so. Welcome, Ms. Cohn. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. So I want to start with a quote of yours that you actually finished the book with, um, or towards the end at least. You say, I haven't arrived at some place of enlightenment. I've simply realized I need to turn on the light. And later we'll talk about turning on the light, what that looks like. But I want to start with how your journey began and what led you to the conclusion that you needed to uncover the intricacies of hate. Um, you know, for me, I mean, I think a lot of people, right, can look around at the world as it is today and feel that we are in a uh, an overly hateful, ugly, cruel time. Uh, for me, um, that revelation, I sort of always had the revelation about hate, you know, I always, I, I think, uh, maybe some people maybe think about it more recently politically, but I've felt it for quite a long time as someone who worked in advocacy and organizing and saw a lot of the pain and suffering of hate and inequality and injustice. But I thought it was a problem I was working to fix. I didn't think it was a problem I was a part of. That's a really important distinction here, I think. And so it wasn't until I made the shift from being a grassroots uh, sort of involved community organizer to working as a commentator at Fox News and confronting the people who I saw, not confronting, just meeting, interacting with the people who I had come to think of as hateful in the world and realizing that they, yes, supported some views, had some ideas that I thought were definitely hateful, but were not just hate, were not only totally, completely, constantly hateful, but were complicated, sometimes kind, sometimes cruel, uh, people like myself. And it was that revelation that led to uh, me wanting to understand hate, not just as a phenomenon that is outside of us and that affects us, but actually is understanding each of our role in hate. What's the piece of the problem that all of us feed into and therefore need to be part of solving? You, you said Alinsky says good organizers must rub raw the scores of discontent. And and one I'm thinking, uh, I think, is Trump a good organizer? He's pretty good at that. And, and But it made me think about your having worked for 15 years as a community organizer and kind of from that time frame, you know, fighting for change and, and wondering if you've come to learn whether or not that's the best approach. You know, I always kind of 
it, it grates me a little bit when we're like, we're fighting for peace, you know, <laughs> like, okay, there seems to be right. some, some contradiction or dichotomy there. Yeah, I mean, and, and there is, right? And we often don't, you know, we, we tend to see the dichotomies and contradictions in others and not in ourselves. And we see them in the other side and not in ourselves. And that's often the problem. And, you know, for for me, I mean, yes, so, so much of hate or of, uh, sorry, of organizing, of advocacy, of politics in general is very much about framing, uh, you know, not just people's discontent, but stoking fear, division, uh, you know, anger, resentment. And that's, yes, historically true more on the right than the left, but it both parties have done it. Both sides have done it uh, and often feel justified in doing it when it's being done in the, you know, when it's being done by their side. And that's the, that's, I think, the really interesting thing about the phenomenon of hate, which is here we find ourselves in a moment politically where most people, I think, could say, yes, we have a problem with hate and division in our society. And at the same time, most people don't think it's their problem. They don't think it's a dynamic, a situation that they themselves are contributing to. And how fascinating is that? That we have a massive problem that no one thinks they're responsible for. So then the, what has to change is not that we see it as a problem, but that we see it as our problem. Well, and that we blame all the others, right? Because it's become such this separation of us versus them in every relationship, and it's always them. Correct. Well, and it's, and, and you know what? Guess what? So it might be. It might be. It, it, is, it is a plausible thing to argue that the other side did it worse than first. Fine. Sure. Okay. Uh, but we also know that they're probably not going to be the ones to solve it, right? And our condescending hateful attitudes about the other side, I would think are pretty good at confirming that, that belief. So now what, what do you do? Uh, your sanctimonious sense that you're better than the other side isn't worth a hill of beans when you're still contributing to a dynamic and refusing to do anything about it because you're just busy pointing fingers and placing blame. So let's talk a little bit about the the media's role in that, because there is so much inflaming going on. And um, in in the book, it says hateful behavior has become an acceptable norm. And I think that's a critical element. Um, In the last three months of 2017, anti-Semitic incidents rose 86%. And so maybe we'll look at like, what role does the media play and um, and the way that it changes communication and also the, the role of the apology and taking responsibility. We have great examples just recently from Roseanne Barr and Samantha Bee and then Trump's reaction. And I thought it was such an amazing example of deflection when you saw some Trump supporters being questioned about it. And one just looking at the reaction, you know, there's, if, if you think of like neuro-linguistic programming, they're looking down, the head shifting, the eyes are turning to the left. And... Mm. And they are just focusing, they completely ignore the question about the comments, and they just focus on the reframing that Trump did with, well, what about my apologies? Where are my apologies? You know, just completely shift of, of, of deflection. Right. Yes. But in fairness, right, and I agree with everything you just said, and in fairness, the, a lot of people on the left did the same thing with Sam B. Exactly the same thing. You know, look, it's not, uh, you know, that's the, here, let me explain why that 
different. That word is different than this and that, you know, and, and again, as a matter of, you know, example and degree, I, I, of course they're substantively different. What, what Roseanne said and what Sam B said, and I guarantee if Trump said what Sam B said, same people would have been completely outraged, would have been talking about how that's a misogynistic word, et cetera, et cetera. So again, we, what we, the problem is, is that we allow our condemnation of hate to be shaped by who exactly is doing the hating. And that includes giving our own hate a pass that we say, oh, well, you know, I hate, I hate them, but it's because they're hateful. Well, the, the, the essential problem is that hate is never the answer to hate. And just like injustice is never the inju- answer to injustice, inequality is never the answer to inequality, cruelty is never the answer to cruelty. And we can't be- pretend, we think that our hate is part of the answer, right? That we are being so bold and righteous in recognizing the uh, nastiness and, and, and sort of systemic otherizing of the opposition. What we don't realize is that hate isn't the solution. It's part of the problem. And we're putting it in, maybe not as much, but we're still putting it in. I, I love that your book, it just got me thinking on so many levels, because even just the title, The Opposite of Hate, I thought, okay, so what is really the opposite of hate? And there, and there are lots of opposites of hate. And then I started thinking, well, what really is hate? And what's the difference between hate and hatefulness and doing something hateful and hating someone and being mean? And so I thought maybe we could spend a little time unraveling that and, and looking at its causes and, and its opposites, because it's tricky. And I think the first step to really doing something about it is understanding it at a deeper level level and understanding our conceptions of it and our reactions to it. And so I'm wondering if while writing the book, it got you thinking about the the different motivators and excuses for hate, you know, belonging and purpose, envy, greed, authority and authority doctrines, because in the different chapters of the book, it really seems like the different reasons for the whys make a huge difference on how we're going to fix it. And I thought maybe we could start mm. with the trolling, because I thought some very, very surprising reasons emerged for some of that hateful behavior. You know, this is the interesting thing, to be honest. There's, yes, there's differences in motivations, and there's different theories of why people hate, et cetera, et cetera. And, and sort of once you get into the micro, there's sort of hairs to be, you know, pointed out and differences to be shaded, et cetera. But the truth is that while they're not the same in degree nor necessarily in origin, the the sort of experience of hate, the kind of uh, strikingly benign or as Hannah Arendt called a banal reality of hate is rather consistent across types. So the fact that, for instance, when I uh, called people who trolled me on online, people who'd sort of made made it uh, incredibly consistent habits of theirs to just send me hateful messages, uh, post hateful messages, not just send them, post them publicly every single day sometimes for, uh, you know, uh, years. Um, when I called them and talked to them and asked them, you know, it's, it's interesting, by the way, I didn't even ask them if they hated me. I just assumed they hated me. So my, one of my first questions was, why do you hate me? And, they, you know, pretty much to a one responded by saying, well, I, no, I don't hate you. Uh, in fact, it seemed obvious they didn't hate me you know, to them. Uh, one even no, had a crush you. on you. I, well, one of them had a crush. That was thankfully an outlier. But, um, 
but you know, just but, but no. In fact, they thought I was that I was the one who was hateful. That it was my behavior, or my statements, or, or the way I was on air or online that I was the hateful one. And again, obviously, these are dramatically different examples. But the research shows that people who have participated in what we would be what we would pretty consider like obvious hate groups. Uh, you know, terrorist organizations, uh, you know, neo-Nazi groups, violent uh, right-wing extremist groups, they also don't see themselves as hateful. They do not believe that they are, uh, you know, involved in an ideology of hate or committing acts of hate. Um, and, and, and that's, I mean, even uh, I spoke with a terrorist interrogator who worked for the army in Afghanistan, and she said, uh, even in those situations, most people believe their base motivations are good. Most people don't see themselves as hateful, even at the extremes. And that's profoundly important to understanding. Then, you know, when we respond with hate, we often think we're responding to overt hate with overt hate. And, you know, by and large, that's just not people's experience. You, you talk it out about um, Linda likes bacon, and, and she was said, in real life, I wouldn't be offensive to someone just to be mean or just for entertainment value. And it turned out a lot of the trolling she was doing was because she was bored. She kind of thought, well, that was the game. You know, it was entertaining. Um, and and some of the other people's reasons as well were they, they were masking pain or, or one um, example you give with Lindy West. And, and he said he was jealous of her self-esteem, so he wanted to bring her down. Um, mm-hmm. so, so what then do we do with our reactions to what did you do to your reactions once you started to realize these people weren't necessarily thinking they were being hateful or coming from hate? What did you start to do differently in reaction to some of these trolls? Well, I, it actually, that's, it's, first of all, it's very interesting. I just want to say, because you, you asked a question earlier about the media, and it's worth noting that the core experience that folks sort of shared was a sense that they kind of didn't matter, that they were voiceless, uh, invisible. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, were surprised I even paid attention to their tweets because they were used to nothing they say mattering. And that was so striking to me. And in particular, you, you think, well, why are people behaving in this way online? And People say it's about anonymity, and that's and there's some evidence to prove that, and that's true. But we've also gotten to a point in our culture, and our media is definitely celebrating this. Obviously, our politics is now as well, where you know that's how you get attention in our society. That's how you get cult, you know that that cultural currency, and in an increasingly less substantive political and media environment, where you know we uh, you know celebrate and give attention to the most outlandish people, things people say online, people who are feeling voiceless and invisible politically, economically, socially are incentivized in part by our current cultural climate to behave outlandishly online. You know, consider it a mass cry for help. Uh, and it's dysfunctional and it's sad and it's painful and it's hurtful and it's, and it just makes the problem worse. Um, but it, it, the, what it did was it made me look differently at people who are engaging in trolling, uh, that it is less about those individual people being thoroughly rotten, evil, disposable, deplorable, any of those things, and more about the uh, sort of systems and habit and culture and dynamics uh, of our current world. 
Uh, and that, you know, that made a difference. And, and maybe let's talk a little bit about how this incivility is dangerous, because even if it isn't initiating from a place of hate, it certainly can lead to creating that. And, and again, with Linda Likes Bacon, you know, she, she extrapolates from this limited knowledge of Muslims um, and creates a, a story, which we our minds do naturally, right? We fill in the blank spots. And once we start telling ourselves a narrative, we begin to believe it more and more. So, so how is this dangerous? Hmm. Well, you know, there's a psychological phenomenon, I get into the details in the book of how, you know, interestingly, we don't do this to ourselves and our own groups. We, in fact, get angry when other people or other groups of people make generalizations about us. So, for instance, um, Trump supporters uh, don't like being called baskets of deplorables or uh, surprise, you know, surprise. motivated by, but motivated by racial resentment. Of course, of course, they don't like it. Nobody, you know, um, and uh, feel that. I mean, honestly, even sometimes don't like being just called Trump supporters. That there's a sort of implicit generalization and sort of lumping everyone in one, uh, well, literally basket. At the same time, uh, they're often the same people who will make big generalizations about immigrants, Muslims. Clinton supporters, liberal snowflakes, uh, and we tend to do this, right? We do what is called we. This is this is a habit or a practice called essentializing, treating a group of people as though they can all be defined by the same generalizing uh, characteristics and qualities, and we do it to others. We resent it being done to ourselves. We tend to think of it as hateful when it's done to our group or ourselves, but not when it's done to others. And, you know, again, this is what we're, this is the, that kind of uh, paradox that we're getting to here, this double standard. So there was a great article in the Washington Post, and I thought just fit perfectly with your book. I'm like, ah, another fabulous example for her about a um, Muslim gentleman and an ex-KKK um, army sergeant who had been in Afghanistan happily killing mm. um, Muslims. And I thought that was great. And you have such fantastic examples throughout the book of people who maybe began in what seems like an unresolvable, hateful position, um, Arno the skinhead who, who went to a raver, who in his case was maybe really just looking for purpose and belonging and, and found it in, a, in another group. The same thing with uh, anti-Semitic Megan Phelps Roper. And, and I'm wondering about that um, transition from you know, one group where they're hating to even then becoming a part of the group that they hated. And if you see it as a shift from beliefs and, and values or an adoption of the the new beliefs and values of the community, or what, what do you see transpiring in that shift? Mm. You know, again, first of all, it's worth, it's, it's really worth noting. And in some ways, this is very unsettling and if you can kind of get through that you can also find the ways in which it is comforting to realize that when people join again even these what we would think of as overt hate groups uh that they are not doing so by and large the research shows they're not doing so by and large because they already ascribe to the hateful ideas or ideologies of those groups but rather because they are in some way, shape, or form, dis- disassociated, disaffected people who are looking for a sense of 
connection and belonging, and they find belonging in these groups. We know this, by the way, this is how terrorist groups recruit, this is how gangs recruit. They're looking for people who are, uh, you know, who feel uh, uh, like they have nowhere to go, um, who are looking for that sense of belonging. People find it in those groups. And then, and the term the researchers use is that they then slide into the ideology. They deepen their belonging in their group and their connection to each other through deepening their commitment to a hateful ideology. The, 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 the need for belonging comes first, the hate comes second. Uh, it raises all kinds of questions about well, then why is it we can't find belonging in other places in our world and in our life, and that is indeed a, a larger endemic problem we face in this moment. Um, but, uh, and it also, by the way, for me at least, I now, I don't even see I'll be in liberal circles and I'll watch the way people are, you know, uh, going back and forth, jockeying, complaining about the other side on this issue or that issue or whatever. And I watch, oh, right, I see it now. I see we're bonding over hate, too, in our way. It's different, but it's it's also not, obviously, a different degree uh, and severity. So it's very worth noting that when people that, that it's it, that the reason people are in these extremist organizations Obviously, it's also worth pointing out, and I haven't said it here, but, you know, look, if that seems so foreign to folks, you have to bear in mind that we're a nation that for 200 plus years has been steeped in an ideology of white racial supremacy that is very much the ideology that gets tapped into when someone like Arno and Nabok joins a neo-Nazi organization. That, that ideology isn't as rare as we think. It is actually part and parcel with our history in the past and our habits and our culture in the present. So it's, it's understanding again, to me, there's something very disarming, although also vulnerable about recognizing that all these different kinds of hate, including the most extreme are not something that, you know, those alien others do. Uh, it's not just particular, you know, freakish examples of, people who go and become neo that in fact, we are all susceptible. We all do it to some degree and we're all susceptible to it at its extremes. Indeed, that's where genocide comes from. It's when, you know, something a philosopher said to me in the book is we don't have genocides because of a handful of psychopaths. We have genocides because of, you know, they're, they're mass atrocities because masses of people participate in them. That's why they're mass atrocities. Uh, and that's, that is what we have to confront. And you give the reader a huge amount to think about. So <laughs> thinking about that for the last five days, that, that part of the book, mm. again and again and again, because so many of the, the explanations or justifications there are um, contrary to what earlier you feel good about for, as far as solutions, as far as, well, you know, let's, let's understand the other and let's break down the lines between, you know, us and them and let's have dinner together. And you think, oh my gosh, like here was a time where, you know, there, that was happening and yet still this atrocity went, went into action. And you think, okay, you know, there, those are the other reasons, you know, years of history of resentment and inferiority versus 
um, being uh, superior, and then this authority outside that was really dictating behavior. So that one, I, I, I can't even, I can't even wrap my mind around that yet. Um, but mm. let's talk a little bit about because I thought this, I thought, ah, oh, what, what a fantastic job you did explaining it. Um, the um, Jews and Palestinians, and I thought not only did you do a job, ex- great job explaining it and, and the different perspectives, but you had a huge shift personally because you had grown up with a certain perspective and. And narrative, and that seems to have really opened up, and uh, and you'd may may have made a shift to be able to really understand and and embrace um, whether what parts you agree with or not, but to embrace the other story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's uh, it's it. I you know I think well I I grew up conflicted, um, like I think a lot of sort of progressive American Jews on the one hand raised to uh, not question uh, the state of Israel. In fact, to think that questioning or challenging the state of Israel was uh, effectively tantamount to anti-Semitism uh, and believing that in my bones. And then at the same time, um, being a progressive Jew. And so hearing the uh, you know, sort of experiences, stories, reports of the treatment of the Palestinians and on the one hand, uh, you know, being shocked and appalled, on the other hand, sort of being in a perpetual state of denial, which I would say for most of my life manifests itself as a general sort of, you know, uh, structural avoidance. Just avoid all of it. Um, don't weigh in, don't like, just stay away from the issue entirely. Uh, but when I was researching the subject of hate, it honestly was like, how could I, how could I look at this issue and not uh, not address what's happening in Israel-Palestine. It's just such a um, hot spot of tension and hate, you know, both throughout history and in the present and around the world. So I, um, so that's what led me to go there. And it's true. The, what I understood, what I came to understand was that my sort of distant uh, you know, paradoxical feeling is actually, in a way, a microcosm of what people, in fact, feel in these situations, what the scholars call intractable conflicts, these situations that they actually, that the terminology suggests it can never even be solved. This is very depressing. Uh, but that there's this tendency, if we think about what we were talking about earlier, the sort of tendency to point fingers at others, not to your own responsibility, that that happens in these longstanding conflicts as well. Uh, where folks tend to uh, overblame the other side and overexcuse their own side to such an extent uh, that, in fact, neither side uh, ever really holds themselves accountable and nothing ever gets solved. And were you surprised doing the research for your book at the shifts, sometimes quick shifts, but the the shifts that people made, um, beginning with your trolls and then um, ending with Bassam, being able to, especially Bassam, there were two points in the book I cried. Um, and and mm. you're like, really? Like, you, you, okay, you were in prison, you, you shifted, you realized you didn't want to come from hate anymore, but then your daughter's killed. And you still can maintain that space of not hating. It was just incredible. And then to me, the other one was the, the oh. little boy, um, Mr. Scrotum 21. Um, his mom had died oh. recently. And by the end of the interchange, he says, you know, you're so so nice. I'm so sorry. And you're just like, ah, 
Mm-hmm. You know, and again, that's, I think that's the, I think that, I hope that's the hope I bring to the conversation, which is that as bad as it is and as bad as we can be, it also, we can be better. We have been better. We do get better. We, there, you know, we have a history of uh, incredible, extraordinary nastiness uh, and hate and injustice and inequality in our country and in our world. And we have documented evidence, example after example, of people getting better, doing better, the world becoming a little bit more just, a little bit more fair. And even though it doesn't happen, you know, as quickly uh, or thoroughly as we would ever like. And I, 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 I hope that people walk away both seeing themselves a little more and also letting go of, I think, the hopelessness that we often have, that this is the way we are and it's the way we'll always be. It's not. It doesn't need to be. You give, I think, um, what are two really good examples from um, a writer that you talk about, uh, uh, bringing out the point that it's it's really difficult to and frustrating to feel like the you the persecuted person or you the one at the end of that hate or or the end of that oppression that you have to do the work to change it because you're like well that is just so much unfairness on top of unfairness and um and I think we all experience that to some degree in any relationship, regardless of our color or gender. You know, even if it's in a, a romantic relationship, you're the one that wants the other person to do the dishes or to be more respectful in some regard. And you're like, ah, why do I have to do the work? You know, it, it's so frustrating. And yet, you're the one that wants the change. The other person's pretty happy with the situation, obviously, or it wouldn't be maintained. And and yet, that is so hard to kind of say, okay, I'm, I'm the one that, wa- that knows the change needs to begin and want it to happen, and I've got to make it. And also, we are often in a position at that point of feeling so angry um, that it's also hard for sure. us to make the shift because we feel justified in that anger. And from a reasonable perspective, we very well may be. And so we're also asking the shift to happen from from that that person. And then, of course, from the, mm-hmm. the um, aggressor or the oppressor or the, the hater. Um, what does that start to look like? What can we do? I, I loved your example of imagining Aunt Lucy. So maybe we can start there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I think uh, that's right. I use this example of a, a sort of a amalgamed uh, Aunt Lucy to proffer the idea of, you know, look, there are people in your life. I hope if you don't have some, you need to go find some uh, who, and we know, but we know that meeting people, knowing people uh, makes a difference, helps fight hate. You know, Brene Brown says it's hard to hate up close uh, and she's right. And so getting to know the people, whether it's a different religion or political ideology or um, region of the country, we, we do need to actually know people. And that helps cut against that phenomenon of essentializing. We hear those stereotypes, we hear those generalizations, but we have people we know. And we say, oh, that's not so-and-so. That's not so-and-so. That's what allows us to combat that. Uh, it's easier than just doing it intellectually. So, you know, to your broader point, look, of course there's an unfairness in this, right? I mean, let's just also be clear about something that the vast majority of us, the, the world we have as it is, is not the world we would have chosen to design. We might have chosen one with uh, more economic 
equality uh, and opportunity for all uh, with less racial, ju- racial injustice and less misogyny. Uh, I mean, th- you know, we might have chosen one where the history of the United States wasn't built on completely wiping out first people populations. So it's and then justifying uh, it because we determined they were savages. That's right. But it, it's right. You justified it with dehumanization that continues today. You know, and, and, and then that applies at a large level, it applies at an individual level. The um, particular challenges or, or that our um, ancestors uh, or loved ones have gone through, we might not have chosen it. And yet here we are. This is the situation we have. And so we have to decide are we going to lay down and be complacent or are we going to fight and make it better? And I think that, um, yes, it does in particular, it does often feel there is an injustice that I explore in the book in, for instance, in Rwanda, uh, the idea that the Tutsi people would ever forgive the Hutus feels to me painfully unjust. And at the same time, I also recognize both the moral dimensions to that and, and believing in forgiveness and applying forgiveness and applying it evenly and, and to all. And also the practical dimensions that, you know, well, if we're going to get somewhere other than where we are now, someone's going to have to take the first step. And that often is the side that can see the um, pain and problems of hate and oppression and inequality and injustice the most. And you can, we can, you know, that's a, that tension is something we're always going to have and doesn't have to stop us from acting. So as individuals, what are the, the steps we can start taking? Maybe the first one is we start to recognize that we have unconscious biases and we start to notice them and maybe notice that we, we can notice them now and don't have to necessarily act on them or we can start questioning them. Um, what are the steps that you found yourself taking after having done all the research on this book? Because it must have, must have shifted you and shifted your mindsets of, uh, in many areas. That's a great question. Um, it is, it is true. There's, in fact, again, there's research that shows that just noticing, just noticing our biases uh, helps to start to address them. That, that, in fact, we are not, listen, the key thing is, and, I, and I, this is actually something that I did find helpful to think about and do find helpful to think about day after day, is just to realize that it's not inevitable, that we do not have to be this way, that we do not have to be this hateful and cruel and unjust and unkind and um and just knowing that, and therefore knowing that each of us has a choice within it, are we choosing to reinforce the way things have been, or are we choosing to take a different path, that in and of itself introduces uh, something in there that is beyond just, uh, you know, accidentally reproducing the dynamics of the world around us, uh, but being conscious uh, and making choices. And I, I think that's very constructive. And then beyond that, it is really starting to see um, the ways in which each of us, in small or big ways, uh, engages in demeaning and dehumanizing other people, or especially other groups of people, because of their identity or their ideas. That is um, incredibly important to addressing the uh, addressing the uh, you know dynamics that each of us play into. 
I love that the, the idea too that we can practice and you give an example of your daughter drawing some pictures and she was drawing some figures with dark skin that she hadn't done before and and I was thinking when, when I did the intro today I was I called you Miss Cone because I noticed that I and I noticed this a while ago that I will address men by their last name and women by their first names and that even when I'm getting queries sent to me from publicists that I'll read through it and, and I have assumed that it was a man until I get to the name and I'm like oh my god I'm such a sexist <laughs> You know, we all have these, and we all have these tapes in our head, and and we can practice shifting them. Yeah, no, that's right. And and it, and but again, that's a great example where it's, you know, someone else might have described it uh, malicious intent. And you know, it's a really important thing between I- intent and impact. Often, we don't intend to do the hateful or cruel things we do. Um, still, they have a hateful impact. And we have to recognize that and therefore catch ourselves, even when it's not our intent. The flip side is, is often we assume that others have a hateful intent, even though we know that not to be the case in ourselves. Uh, so a little bit, it's, it's, again, recognizing that it's not equal, that some people do do it first and some people do do it worse, but still that we can hold ourselves all a little more accountable and, and set the bar higher while trying to be a little more uh, I think, graceful uh, uh, and understanding to others who we may perhaps have been in the past more quick to dismiss and write off entirely. And, and to ourselves as well, um, I like you had a Walt Whitman quote, and, and I know Jung agrees that we contain multitudes. And, and then I really like mm. the, the part about the Gnostic shadow of uh, that the devil is the, the, the thrown off shadow self. Um, because I think that that's part of the problem as well. We aren't treating ourselves very well either. And we aren't allowing ourselves to be both good and bad, nice and mean, um, you know, and, and, and so judgmental as to, you know, how we must behave. And that that then gets transferred onto everyone else as well. Yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly right. I'm afraid I have to run. Um, uh, Absolutely. I love this conversation. And thank you so much for your wonderful questions. Okay. Well, have a great day. And it was great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Bye bye.